Hello, I'm Freddie Roman from Boston, Massachusetts, and I'm a maker and restorer. Welcome to Cut the Craft. Uh, there's so much to improve. There's so much to grow. Uh, the running joke with me and my my other half is, uh, you know, I'm a curmudgeon, and so. <laughs> You know, it's it's great to hear so much positivity from people, and uh, <laughs> you know, even though deep down I try to be very personable, uh, mm. I do come across uh, blunt, or uh, mm. you know, sometimes I I have to make sure that um, I choose my words wisely because I, I come can come across cold, and uh, deep down I'm not. Uh, it's mm-hmm. just unfortunate, just how my personality is. So I'm happy that uh, she felt that I was a a good person. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, cool. Well, welcome to Cut the Craft, everybody. I'm Brian. And I'm Amy. And we are here with Freddie Roman, a maker and restorer working out of Boston, Massachusetts. Freddie, welcome to the show. And thank you for having me. Yeah. Awesome. I am so pumped to talk to you. So for someone who's unfamiliar through work, can you Describe what you make and then how you fit within your own field for those who are woodworkers and restorers. Oh, that's a great question. You know, I, <laughs> I, I kind of went back and forth, like, how do I fit into this craft? And mm-hmm. uh, basically, I, I'm a trained furniture maker and restore. I, I'm a graduate of the uh, late Furniture Institute of Massachusetts with uh, Master Philip Lowe, who unfortunately passed away this past January. Mm-hmm. Uh and basically, my evolution is Phil always said that you will always have work if you can restore something. Even if that's not your passion or what you truly want to do, you'll never run out of work because something always needs to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And I fall in that suit. So basically, uh, I'm, I went to learn how to do cabinet making. I worked in restoration shops. I worked in conservation shops. I've gotten hired to do work for national park services and i'm basically i've just evolved over time and Mm. my interests uh have also evolved and basically how i fit in is that i adapt to survival and it's just kind of one of those things that when i first started antique furniture the brown and shiny was very collectible and very sought after and people were willing to invest a lot of money into that Unfortunately, due to the new generations and the act of different styles that are coming into the world, brown and shiny is not what people enjoy. So I basically just kind of continually adapt and change my craft because like Phil, I'm a jack of all trades, but the benefit of that is that I'm not just mastering just one trade. I'm mastering or trying to master a variety of trades. Hmm. And that allows me to be able to dip my toe in a variety of different trades get good at everything i may not be a master of anything but i feel extremely comfortable with everything and that allows me to make and restore and appreciate anything from small boxes to reclaim to you know screwing boxes together for built-ins to then actually making museum quality reproductions wow and so it's kind of like this interplay between you getting commissioned to do something that's not necessarily in your direct you know wheelhouse but then you do that job and learn from it and then are able to take something back. And that kind of then informs your interest and those kind of continue to evolve along with the work as well. Yes, exactly. And, and it's one of those things that, uh, you know, Massachusetts has a lot of woodworking schools or say new England. 
And uh, even though I try to convince all the people who come to North Peninsula School and the Furniture Institute or the school in Maine up there, the I forget the name of it right now, uh, with Peter Korn. And mm-hmm. I always say, you know, come in, enjoy the area, now go back home. <laughs> and, and, and the the reason for that is because there's so many people here and it's extremely competitive mm-hmm. and um there's so many people that are hungry and so many people who don't understand pricing and business when they first start out that uh there's a lot of opportunity but unfortunately the money may not be there and there's always going to be someone cheaper than you and that mm-hmm. is, unfortunately happens that's just a cycle of life uh or workflow but mm-hmm. because of that, you kind of have to be able to adapt. And uh, what I have loved to make furniture every single day and uh, put my skills to work every single day, of course. But unfortunately, what happens is that I look at the numbers and I talk to other craftsmen. And unfortunately, that market isn't the same as it once was. Hmm. And because of that, I live in a very expensive state. And if I want to have a family and if I want to survive, because I, I hate the whole mentality of a shoemaker without shoes. Like, you know, mm-hmm. that's not who who I want to be. Right. Uh, I want to be a very comfortable middle class life that is not con- too concerned of something that arises. I can afford to do to do what I need to do or pay for what I need to pay. Uh, so, you know, it's 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 something that um, it's good and bad because like every trade involves different tools. And if you work in in areas that you don't have power, so you have all these beautiful corded tools, but if you have nothing to plug into, then what are you going to do? You're going to buy all these cordless tools. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> you can quickly imagine how all that would add up. And mm-hmm. then you add someone who's going to help you or, you know, employee, and they, they don't have tools. And then you can't just be sharing your drill. So it's like, okay, now we go from just having two drills to having 14 drills because you have one in a van, one in one in each shop, each person mm-hmm. needs a set, you know, so everything ends up be costing more money. So I don't know. Sometimes I say maybe I should have just focused on one trade, but at the same time, I probably wouldn't be doing this full time if I just focused on one trade. Hmm. So in terms of your like personal interests, mm-hmm. um, you know, you said you started out being really interested in period furniture making. Mm-hmm. Where would you say your interests lie now? Uh my true first passion will, will, is always uh, federal furniture, neoclassical federal furniture. Uh, mm-hmm. If I if I would have to say, uh, well, if I have one specialty that uh, I can look at it, I can look at a job that involves veneer or inlay, and I'd be like, yeah, I can handle that, like without any as a hesitation whatsoever. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's it's working with banding, working with veneer, and doing some inlay, and, uh, you know, because I can make all the banding. And there's something about neoclassical furniture, it's, uh, especially a certain time frame, that everything looks very dainty. Everything looks like they're standing on their tippy toes. <laughs> they really, they were really clean on the inside and the outside, especially the furniture makers of like John, John and Thomas Seymour from the Boston area. Everything was just top notch, high quality. Uh, uh, they went to the the ninth in degree to get something just perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like with history, you can learn f- from them and they also died broke. So <laughs> uh, it's just one of those things that you have to be very cautious because while the museums in the world show you the best of the best, there is basements full of what people actually use that normal people actually can afford. Right. Mm. So uh, I like to strike a balance of shaker with federal 
because I like to embellish the simplicity, but still make it look very elegant and grand. And, you know, there's certain standards in the craft, like, you know, you have to have a half inch drawer bottom or your drawer size should be half inch. You know, the English had three inch drawer sides and quarter inch drawer bottoms with a center divider. And that held up for hundreds of years and it was perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. So I enjoy stretching everything out, you know, everything, a lot of, a lot of new makers and I was there make everything really heavy. So, mm. you know, instead of being thirty, instead of being three quarters, maybe it was 11 sixteenths or five eighths instead of being mm. half, maybe it was seven sixteenths or five sixteenths. Mm -hmm. Those oddball numbers. And, uh, over time as visiting these auction houses and everything else, I started taking measurements. And I started noticing that everything was a 16th of an inch less or three thirty seconds, you know, it's just like, and it looked wow. more pleasing to the eye. Mm. So it's just like, you know, it's, so it's actually amazing. So I enjoy history. I enjoy the, the historic furniture. I enjoy, you know, modern furniture, even though, believe it or not, for someone like me, it's easy for me to copy than it is mm -hmm. for me to make something new. Mm. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm, I'm basically, I'm copying what exists. Now I can make it my own from taking certain elements from different pieces mm -hmm. and making it my own. But when it comes to overall, just design of something modern, like, you know, that's not who I am. Yeah. It is kind of nice when you realize all of those like standards, like you were talking about the half inch and everything are, are pretty arbitrary and mm -hmm. that you can like stretch those out. That's, that's really nice. It, you know, and it's amazing when you study one maker. So I was able to look at for a lot of, uh, Lombard pieces. He was a rural cabinet or furniture maker out in the uh, disturbage area. Um, and I was measuring several of his pieces and I, and I started just realizing like, oh, this is, this is 13 sixteenths. And then I was like, oh, he must've, you know, close enough. But then every single one was 13 sixteenths, 13 sixteenths. Huh. The case size are 13 sixteenths. The top was 13 sixteenths. <laughs> so it was just like either his scale was off by sixteenth or three quarter was too light. And that 13 sixteenths was like perfect and seven eighths <laughs> was too heavy, you know? So yeah. I find that wow. very interesting and, 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 it, and it varied depending on the area. It's like, you know, that was more rural 13 sixteenths was like, you know, good standard size. And then you get into more of a city and it's just like, you know, the 11 sixteenths, that five eighths, that seven sixteenths. <laughs> oh, you know? wow. So it's like, uh, the customer played a role, you know, obviously stock plays a role, but you know, maybe a particular customer or a particular craftsman really enjoyed something being more delicate, you know, mm -hmm. or something, something was just like, I mean, it looks, it looks too thin, but it's almost too heavy. So I had to find like a, a middle ground. So mm -hmm. I find that all, all very interesting. And, uh, you know, I wish I did more of it. Uh, but it's like anything else. Uh, I, I, you know, time is not as friendly as it used to be. And, uh, I, I just, I can't just, come home and dive back into studying all that and reading every article or book like I used to when right. I was much younger. Mm -hmm. So it's, I do, I do my best. Wow. So do you find that you're doing a lot more conservation and restoration work than like maybe like making your own furniture and things like that and sort of playing off of historical furniture pieces? Yeah. You know, I, I do mainly do restoration work right now. Uh, okay. and it's, you know, what it is, is it's, it was a choice. You know, I, I used to bid on a lot of furniture making job opportunities, but mm -hmm. I always came in, uh, you know, if whatever job I got usually wasn't the price that I wanted to do it at first. And unfortunately what happens is that you constantly give more than you, what you promised. 
that mm-hmm. or you know the hours say this is supposed to be a 200 hour job is i'm now at 300 mm-hmm. and i'm not charging anymore because you know the material acted a certain way or client wanted something that looks something different and it's like you adapt to please them hoping that you get another commission which you know like almost like nine out of ten when it comes to large commissions they're not going to come back to you you know unless you're very reasonable or there's no one around or they truly love you mm-hmm. and uh what people don't understand sometimes is that you know clients i i, I laugh there's been clients that say you know i want this to be a relationship we want to be friends and i kindly reply we're never going to be friends <laughs> it's just <laughs> It's just, it's that. just, you're, you're a customer. I'm, I'm, I'm like, you know, your employee, but at the same time, you know, the reason why I own my own business is because you can fire me and I can fire you, you know, mm-hmm. you know, so it's like, I respect you. I have a responsibility. I know that things need to work, but at the same time, you need to understand that, uh, this is just a labor and this is just me making a living. And, uh, you know, I like to work for myself and, you know, we're probably, if we, if we become friends, great. You know, that's a rare oddity, but the chances are, it's just that, you know, the minute that you gave me money, you think you own me. So that friendship mm-hmm. is always not truly going to be a friendship. Totally. Right. So, yeah. You know, I like to kind of cut through the cloth there and just be like, let's be real. Like, you know, <laughs> we're never. <gonna> right. <laughs> so. Real talk with Freddie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I I have I have great customers. So I I do have customers who've come back multiple times for mm-hmm. re- restoration and some making of furniture. Uh, those those people are great. And, but what I've noticed with them is that they truly, honestly understand that I am the craftsperson and that there's a process and that I respect them and uh, they respect me and uh, I'm not ignoring them but you know sometimes you have to look at a piece and be like this is not feeling right right you you have to look at it and stare and like i gotta leave it there for a day or two and then come back to it and then do a sample and then try it and then you know try to come up with something that looks good for you as well that you know the customer will be happy but because of that the time frame delays and changes Mm -hmm. and you know there's 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 a lot of ugly furniture out there for a reason it's just because People didn't stop and kind of, you know, and obviously everyone has an evolution. They grow, they become better. I understand that. But at the same time, there's people who don't grow because they're not willing to stop and step Mm -hmm. back and study and understand what needs to change. So because of that, you kind of have to adapt. Applications are now open for the John C. Campbell Folk School's traditional craft mentorship program a chance for emerging artists to learn from master artisans in Brasstown, North Carolina. If you're an intermediate crafter in broom making, clay, cooking, or wood carving looking to build up your skills, this is an opportunity for you. For more information and to apply, browse the mentorship and residency opportunities on their website, folkschool.org. Applications are due December 1st. North House Folk School teaches traditional craft on the shores of Lake Superior. Learn everything from spoon carving to wool spinning and timber framing to sausage making. They are now taking registrations for classes through April of 2022. And right now they're celebrating the winterers gathering online and on campus throughout November with winter-centric coursework, speakers, and a film festival. Learn more at northhouse.org. How did you become interested in woodworking? Like, What's your kind of background story? Well, uh, before the age of 10, my uncle, uh, Annabelle, Al, for short, uh, gave me a, a box 
full of tools and they had like hammer and pliers and and um dikes and a handsaw and uh i think i said hand plane chisels and screwdrivers it wasn't a stanley tool set but it's something you know i remember it like like a handy tool set and mm -hmm. uh you know my first my first uh piece i made were were these step stools uh, i found the paint behind a garage door that was my neighbors they were painted green and you know basically i i hand cut these things you know um and i nailed them uh -huh. with my uncles and my dad and you know and i made several of them i gave them to my neighbors and everything else and ever since then i kind of was addicted to it and oh, wow. um, i fell in love with with that time frame you know there's also that um what's that famous maker who has his own show roy underhill mm -hmm. uh you know i got along or i just i felt like i understood roy underhill a lot because in the beginning scenes of of that show is that he's walking with an ax in the city and walking into the woods, you know, with that mm -hmm. toolbox and everything else. And I kind of felt the same way. I kind of felt that, you know, there was something uh, special to be able to use hand tools. And, you know, mm -hmm. that's all I knew. And I lived in the, in the inner city and I, I, I wanted to explore more and enjoy myself more. And, uh, you know, but at the same time, I appreciate always looking up and looking at all the skyscrapers and everything else. So there's always a passion for working with my hands. I knew early on if I wanted something of quality that I'm the one who had to make it. You know, I grew mm -hmm. up, you know, lower end middle class. Uh, mm -hmm. My parents did anything and everything they could to give us what they could afford. But, you know, we didn't grow up in a, a great area. We constantly moved. And, uh, you know, the, whatever we bought from Bradley's or Kmart or Caldor's of the time frame, uh, you know, if it had to be fixed, we fixed it. And uh, so I fell in love with also visiting other people who were, had more money or wealth than we did. And I appreciated everything that I saw. And I said, you know, when I go back to my family's houses and everything else, I didn't see any of that. So I say to myself, well, the only way for me to get that stuff is for me to figure out how it was made. Mm -hmm. and how I can go ahead and install that in my future. So that passion just derived from wanting more and wanting to be different. Hmm. Hmm. That's kind of how it came from. You're like, I will be a furniture maker who has furniture. <laughs> well, is that, or it, honestly, <laughs> that when, it, when it first started, it was, I, I wanted to be a builder. Like in terms of like general contract-y? Yes, like build, stuff? build a house, build, be mm -hmm. a house right. You know, mm -hmm. I, I thought that's where I wanted to go. I went to school for architecture and I, I was very competitive in drafting. Back then it was only uh, CAD key uh, and uh, I loved it. I, I had a true passion for it. And, you know, computers were on the rise back then. Everything was changing from the floppy disk to mm -hmm. the scan disk, you know, everything else. So everything was evolving. So everything got very interesting. But you reach a certain point, at least for me, that... Um, you go to school, you pay all this money, and you're learning from a student teacher, or you, you, mm. you're learning from an economics teacher, and then you do a math uh, equation for a calculus, and the teacher tells you you're wrong, and, and I say, no, you're wrong. Actually, I'm correct. <laughs> and then we, we, we go back and forth on the board, and, and next you know, uh, oh, I guess, Freddie, you are correct. And it's like, oh, here's <laughs> I, 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 I would like to sign. I would like to basically not take this class anymore. Please sign this form. I'm done. It's just, it was one of those things that I just became frustrated. And then, you know, maybe it was just where I grew up and how I was raised. They said, you know, I had to pick one. I couldn't be a builder and a designer. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's when I started finding, you know, Norm Abrams in uh, mm-hmm. his cabinet, Yankee cabinet shop. And I was just like, you know what? I, there's something to be said of just drawing something yourself and then going out and making it. And totally. So I came at a crossroads and I left college and then I found Woodcraft in Connecticut, uh, Manchester, Connecticut. And then back there they had a school called that's now called the Connecticut Valley School of Working. And I was fortunate enough to take classes there from a lot of famous uh, writers from Fine Woodworking Magazine. And then I tripped over my my lovely mentor, Phil Lowe, there. And he suckered me to move to <laughs> Massachusetts and spend a, spend a lot of money. And uh, I learned how to draft by hand. And I got to build or draw what I want and go build it. So in the end, my dream was met. I was a... That's awesome. I did a, the you know best of two worlds. Wow. I love that that you were just like in college. You're like, nah, this is crazy. I'm not doing this. I want to go. Like, I'm just gonna like follow my passion and do it because I I feel there's so much pressure around like having a degree and all that kind of stuff, and that like that's supposedly the only way you're gonna be successful. But I just don't really believe that. <laughs> no, you know that. I will say this, uh, and it all depends on the person and how they grew up. Like I grew up mm-hmm. with a very poor education. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really far behind. I had to take tutors and everything else. Uh, I was intimidated of reading, and uh, the vocabulary was very slim because you know uh, the language I learned is Spanglish, Spanish and English at the same time. Mm-hmm. And in this, in a Spanish back uh, kind of the background of Spanish speaking, we say everything backwards in a sentence. But it makes sense because that's how Spanish is spoken. But translate that mm-hmm. to English. Even today, my stories sometimes when I try to explain it, they're backwards. They make sense mm-hmm. to me. But mm-hmm. verbally, I have to sometimes think, you know, all right, this is how it is in Spanish, but this is how you present it in English. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it was a challenge. Um, but I believe there's no reason for to have to go get a degree. You go to college not sometimes to get to pay for a degree, but to actually get educated, to mm. get to learn the responsibility of having to pay for it, your education, learn to actually have a mature conversation, to build up mm. your vocabulary, to possibly take business classes so you understand what involves to be in business and understand what an A truly means. Like you can't just cheat to the process. You actually physically have to put the work in. And mm-hmm. hoping in that one or two time frames, you know, maybe it's just an associate's or maybe there's nothing at all. It's just taking classes just to learn mm-hmm. so that you become better as a as a an adult and then go on to your passion. And it's kind of like how I try to tend tell people because there's at the age of 18, most often you don't know what you want. And yeah. college may not be your, your place. So um, but at the same time, you know, you still have a lot to learn. And I feel sometimes yeah, sometimes in the construction field, sometimes in the woodworking world, you know, it's funny. You interact with people and it's like, I'm sorry, I haven't really spoken to that many people. They feel intimidated or they're, they're lost for words because they don't use their vocabulary. Mm-hmm. While mm-hmm. going to college, you build your vocabulary, you learn and you expand and then you feed that hunger that your brain still wants. And then you can continually take that passion of reading and everything else towards more of your craft. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to look at it where it's sort of like, you know, you don't necessarily have to do it, but if you do it, it's still not enough to just do it. Like you have to do anything you're doing with that sort of intention. 
mm-hmm. in order to get something meaningful out of it because otherwise it's just like something on a piece of paper that doesn't mean anything and now you owe right. a bunch of money on it yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 exactly you know yeah. and, and that's where i think community college comes comes into play and it can play a huge role mm-hmm. uh i i benefited from going to manchester community college and then my freshman or my first year in college um I happened to land on a Greek professor who was a, you know, she had her doctorate degree in English and her parents were in, lived in town. She grew up in Manchester and they were elderly and they were getting ill. So she had to basically take a, a possibly a year or two off to take care of their parents, but she couldn't walk away from teaching because that was her passion. Mm-hmm. And somehow I lucked out at the same, at the time I was frightened as all heck because she said the first day, today is the only day a paper is not due. Every single time we met two times a week, a paper is due. And it's like, and the first paper is four, the next one's six, the next one's eight, 10, 12, 14, et cetera. And she's like, and front and back, double space is one page. Okay. Oh, jeez. So, so it was the most intense English class or any class I've ever taken to the point that when it came to our last assignment, it was, the question was, Clinton or Gore? Give me the reason. You know, give me the reasons behind, you know, which party you're going to vote for and give me both sides and give me the negatives and the positive and, and, you know, and everything else. So the last page or last paper was 20 pages front and back. So in reality, it's 40 pages. Jeez. And I still have her grade in my top drawer of my desk today. Uh, from the 2000 and like 2000 yeah 2000 and uh, in there i got an a minus and she said that she the best compliment i've ever gotten was that i wish i could read 10 more pages of this wow so and so because of that i've come such a long way and and i felt so proud because as english being not my strongest language or any language being my strongest to evolve to that point of a harvard doctorate instructor professor give me that compliment it's huge it's mm. huge wow, yeah. um you know i still have plenty to learn but at that moment in life i was just like i was like at a peak and it, and it felt great and i'm blessed to have attended this course at this odd time when there happens to be this just instructor and that normally doesn't teach at this school and it was amazing and those are the experiences that community college can give you I guess that's totally. the, the yeah. whole purpose of, the, of me gabbling here. So. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, that's a super, obviously a super important, you know, part of your story that led you to where you are. Mm-hmm. My question is, did you make that desk drawer just to house that, that document? Uh, no, <laughs> I see it more now because I know it's there, but in the past I saved it because it meant something. And then I was, as I was cleaning stuff out at a desk and everything else, I trip over and I read it and it, it just reflects back. And now uh, I, re- I look at it as, I, you know, several times throughout the year and it, it feels good just to see that A minus in her comments. And it just gives me the opportunity to reflect back on a, and see how far I've come. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, and you've, you write for uh, fine woodworking, don't you? Like a, you're a contributor? Uh, I've only Sometimes. contributed a couple times I have an article com- that they're going to shoot in December. I would like oh. to, to write more. Yes. Mm-hmm. I would, I would enjoy doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's more to, I have a battle of, do I want to teach more, uh, or 
do I want to keep my mentor's words alive and his techniques mm -hmm. and his methods? And uh, so I would like to, yes, write more and contribute more. I think there is a great opportunity there, uh, especially since uh, I understand how people feel. Because sometimes what happens is when you study under a master, everything seems easy to them. Everything is simple. Everything is like fast and swift. And I can still understand what a beginner feels mm. and their hesitations and mm -hmm. and their what scares them and how they value this piece of wood like it's worth a million dollars and so i believe that the techniques that i've learned uh can help a beginner and it can also help an, an advanced furniture maker or, or a woodworker so i like to share these methods uh with people because i believe that a lot of the information believe it or not it's still not in words. It's still not on paper. Mm -hmm. And uh, I strongly believe in at some point in the future, I'll write a book, even if it's self-published, on the techniques that I have learned over the years from studying under a variety of different masters that I believe should be continued and shared for the next generation because we are constantly losing information. Mm. And, uh, you know, we, totally. we, we always have plenty of beginner information, which is great. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we never have enough of the intermediate and advanced. Hmm. Why do you think we're losing that information? Uh, we're losing that information because um, people think it's too hard. Uh, people now have CNCs. People, um, they think there will always be someone out there that can do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and what we're, I think what people don't realize is that there isn't people coming up and doing these methods and doing these techniques and we're losing out and things are becoming more simplified. And uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but at the same time, there's, there's, there's methods that doing it by hand, it's sometimes it's just quicker, easier, faster, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel that if no one, no one thinks about doing a, you know, you angle your saw uh, at an angle and then you angle the cut at an angle and then you go ahead and cut down an angled line. And it's just like this compound angled mitered, you know, cut. Mm -hmm. And everyone will try to go ahead and make a jig on the table saw and do all these mm -hmm. little different bevels and everything else. And it's just like, like, no, just strike these two lines, set your saw, cut it. <laughs> Man. How disparaging to make a house but not afford the goods to make one for yourself. On the other side, how rewarding to have the skills and tools to carve whatever you want from wherever. Our next guest knows both sides of that coin. He works with wood, mud, and people. He works in natural building, permaculture, and primitive skills. In Oregon. Kiko Denzer mostly works in Oregon and believes even the work you do that doesn't work out is fodder for something else. In this conversation, Kiko, Brian, and Amy talk about communities, larger structures and systems, both physical and ideological, connecting to being by avoiding any iteration of the verb to be, the wandering social media mind, getting your hands dirty, making bread, and making that bread, not to mention being walking bellies. Come join us. I'm thinking of programs that you mentioned uh, that are teaching these traditional techniques, are they not quite teaching the ones you are talking about? Or is it you're talking about more in a 
sort of like different context, I guess. Uh, well, I think it's all the above, believe it or not, because it's like in stair making, it has to be more commercial residential work. You know, I see how people make stairs today versus historic stairs that I'm working on or a historic stair maker. The techniques are totally different. You know, there's the balusters are, are socket dovetailed and the handrails are, you know, are, you know, they're mass produced, not mass produced, but they're each individually made with hand tools and power tools. And they're, the shaper will do so much or the router will do so much. And then the rest you hand carve and you hand shape. And those techniques, you know, those are far and few in between now. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. then, and then unfortunately, it's not unfortunate, but the there's only two to three years that you can learn so much on, at North Bennett Street School, for example. And I was there. So depending on the student, there's some students out there that just get it. And they just like, so they're just so gun ho and they, they don't care if they screw up and this is just part of the process or they're so talented. Like I graduated under amazing craftsmen. Like it was intimidating when I walked in there and I'm seeing these, you know, roundabout, you know, chairs with cabrio legs and ball and claw feet and Bombay Chester drawers and secretaries and carve this and carve that. <laughs> I, know. I would just like turn around and leave like, <laughs> like okay. And, I, and I'm over there like, I just want to make a table, you know, a table maybe, you know. So, um, but what we've noticed as the school, when I worked working with Phil at the school, uh, as shop classes disappeared and less and less people got involved into woodworking, we had to dummy down the program. Mm -hmm. Things had to be structured differently. Like and you had to start from an even more beginning point. Yes, definitely. Mm -hmm. You know, everything is a little bit more structured. You know, we're doing, everyone's doing this footstool. Everyone's doing this chair. Everyone's mm -hmm. doing this toolbox that's limited in size. And everyone's doing this small case piece. The reason being is because those techniques are important to learn. And that's in, there's a lot, a lot to learn, but you kind of have to limit them because the, the craftsman may not be there, the mentality, mm -hmm. the knowledge, the skill level, but at the same time, the school is so big and they only have so much equipment. So you kind of have to limit them, limit them as well there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the difference between say Phil's furniture Institute and North Bennett is that Phil had six students. North Bennett is like 38 or in the forties. So, wow. you know, so there's a lot of a lot of um, more students to deal with in projects. So you kind of do have to limit them. And mm -hmm. uh, you, at the same time, at, at Phil's school, it's it's not structured. It's like, you know, it's similar. Uh, you had to make a, a table, a toolbox, a case piece. You can make a chair, maybe a bed. But the difference is, is that Phil would let you fail. Mm. Not, not because... Uh, he wasn't paying attention, but his mentality was, I'm not always going to be there and you need to learn these things you need mm -hmm. to grow and we're going to make you grow real fast. And sometimes some <laughs> students would get upset and it's like, I'm paying so many thousands of dollars. You should have helped me do this, that and next and answer my questions. And he's like, that's fine. If you want that, that's perfectly fine. But you may not learn, you know, from me always giving you the answer. Mm -hmm. I'm always there to assist you and watch you struggle. And before you make the cut, he magically always came out of nowhere and be like, you sure you want to make that cut? <laughs> <laughs> so, sure? yeah, you know, those, those, a man of few words, but, uh, he, he, he would, you know, when I was growing up, for example, it was just like, 
and I was in a hard place and I, you know, living up here was totally new and, you know, middle class was higher middle class up here. You know, one day he said to me, you know, sometimes it's always great to see the birds on the fence, but never actually going out there with the birds and hanging out on the fence. So, mm-hmm. and he, at the time it was just like, what the hell does that mean? Like, <laughs> but in the end, it's basically, it's just like, you don't have to follow what everyone else is doing and hang outside. You know, sometimes you can still observe from inside and be different. Hmm. And so it's kind of one of those things that his words have so much meaning. So it's like when he told you something, you know, like when I first got into woodworking and I did my first project and I was first so proud of it. So probably and I asked Phil, you know, what do you think? Uh, he says, you know, we all made primitives, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, it, it was it's basically it was like, you know, everyone evolved. He's like, you could come to my house and see my first bone claw. And it's like, you know, they look like they have arthritis and, uh, <laughs> but they were still on a piece of furniture. And then today, if he was alive, he would be able to cut a bone claw feet and everything else within a few hours. Mm-hmm. But back mm-hmm. then, you know, it'll be days and it would look terrible, yeah. but he still put on a piece and still evolved. So right. it's kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so to answer your question, I think it's both residential furniture making. Uh, there's just like cha- like chair making. Chair making, it's just like the compound angled my uh, like joinery. You know the angled compound mortise and tenon, the wedged you know mortise and tenon, the Chippendale side rail that it's tapered, compound and twisted from front to back. And the only way to get that twist is by hand. Mm. And it's just like getting all those techniques. Like people make chairs today. But everything's boxy, square, never angular. The legs don't taper in that much. They mm-hmm. they just more vertical. And mm-hmm. you know, if you see period furniture, there's so many thousands of chairs with these compound, angled, weird shaped, curved, flat. They 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 must have understood and got the training that they needed and built beautiful pieces that were actually comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. And as evolution you know, kept on happening, the information was lost. Then you got more straight, more angular, more not as supportive. And then the the thought process of like chairs weren't meant to like sit back and lean on while the queen Anne chair with a serpentine splat, it support your lumbar. It's the arms were perfect. It was sized correctly. The the shapely legs were out of the way. You felt comfortable. You could sit on this chair for hours and enjoy. And I think, you know, obviously style changes, but at the same time we lost information. So things changed hmm it makes me wonder like um what role the like industrial revolution had in people's understanding of design and like like if there was a or i i think we're still dealing with it where it's like we still think in terms of how can i make a machine do this thing rather Mm -hmm. than how can I make this design happen and approach it from that angle, like the human angle as opposed to like creating a jig so that I can make 75,000 chairs that are uncomfortable rather than. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Totally. Does that make sense? Ma- like hundred percent mass production, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's insane how, how it's just about getting the, the results, the product done as quickly and efficiently mm-hmm. as possible so that the pockets are aligned. 
mm-hmm. more, or mm-hmm. or that you know you know at the same time there was a need you know there you know there was Chicago fires San Francisco fire we still had to go ahead and supply these people with the essentials that they were known for mm-hmm. so what what can we do we have to mass produce and we have to streamline so I understand there isn't there's a reason for this at the same time uh, I think there's 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 a lack of artistry involved there mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. understanding of uh, you know support and and uh, longevity you know it's like yeah. it's like the ongoing debate of you know I use epoxy to glue up my beautiful custom piece because mm-hmm. of how the open time and the flexibility of the clamping and everything else and I said that's you know at the same time I need you to understand that when 20 30 years from now when possibly I need to fix this piece I can't fix it. So all I'm going to do is literally cut off right at the leg joint, the mortise yeah. and tendon, because I can't save it. So yeah. if you actually think of longevity and possibly use high glue with a little bit more water and more open time, more clamp time, you can yeah. still get everything you need, but it's reversible. It's fixable. The history will live on. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I People, know. I mean, if you don't have an understanding... I. I wouldn't necessarily, I'm not really a furniture maker sort of person. I have like a limited understanding of furniture. And Mm -hmm. um, if you're not, if you don't spend time with the material and if you don't have someone who understands materials that were used, you know, pre-revolution or pre-industrial revolution or um, kind of pre-petroleum era. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, then you just don't, you have no idea. It's like ignorance. You just, you're just ignorant of, um, how well something worked and why it worked as well as it did. Why we still have houses that were built like 250 years ago and they work really well. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's just, it's just interesting. And I like what you had to say about skill in, um, removing material, you know, compound angles and things like that. Just, just learn how to do it. And then you don't have to spend an hour and a half, you know, making a jig to do something just once. And then you have this giant jig in your shop that just sits around and collects dust until the next time you have to use it in two years. Um, yes, exactly. And I'm talking about that from personal experience. I'm like, my gosh, it's, (laughs) it's just so much easier to use my ax and just chop this thing out really quick, then go and like try to find the little part that I need to like figure out how to machine this piece of wood and all that kind of stuff. It's so frustrating to me. And I'm just like, if I just learn how to do it with my hands, mm-hmm. then I don't have to spend two hours fumbling around with nuts and bolts and jigs and all that crap. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Well, you know, the, the bad part as, as we age is like you have you spent so much time making this jig and then you say to yourself, I'm going to save this. And then you forget what that jig was for and you get frustrated right. and you end up talking it away anyway. <laughs> yeah. Look, where's that stupid jig? I knew I had yeah. it somewhere. It's like, oh. Exactly. You end yeah. up making another one. At least with me, it's like you can hide anything in front of me. It's like to the point... <laughs> It's to the point that if I'm frustrating doing the woodworking yoga, looking for something that I know I have, I usually have to then close my eyes, turn around, count to three and come back. And there it is right in front of me Mm -hmm. every time. But before I forget, uh, Phil would always tell us as students, he's like, master the understanding of the hand tools and the approach. So you understand the limitations of the power tools. Mm hmm. 
So it's, you know, because sooner or later you have to ask yourself, they made so many of these, how did they do it? They didn't have these tools or power tools. So we complicate things. And sometimes we need to understand that like these guys or these folks only had so much time. They were still making a living. So they had to get to point A to point C as quickly as possible, efficiently, but still get the results that they desire. Mm-hmm. So if I'm working on something that's very, that's taking a long time and I'm just saying to myself, why am I wasting all this time doing this with power tools? Just grab the ax, grab the fro, grab whatever I have and use the understanding of the hand tools to migrate forward. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. So which pieces are you most proud of? Um, you know, I, I can't go into too much detail because of contracts I signed, but mm-hmm. um, there was, I worked for a company in Connecticut. They had a national contract for a national park service. I got hired mainly for probably two reasons, probably because they suckered me to get a really low wage. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and I traveled an hour and 20 minutes each way to get to their shop. And my specialty was veneer and inlay. Uh, we mm. made together as a unit, uh, we made 12 or 15 pieces together. And uh, they, you know, they were uh, a roll top, slant top desk. And we have uh, two lap desks with a drawer with secret compartments. There was two hall tables. There was, um, you know, these amazing historic um chairs that had 22 karat gold tacking and horsehair fabric that the same manufacturer from the 1700s the family still existed still had the original swatch in france made and made for the the famous you know um politician it still existed Mm -hmm. wow and uh working on these pieces were amazing because while they and i did not always meet eye to eye uh, they gave me a stack of drawings, stack of pictures, a stack of wood. They say, take an hour, get going. And there was never <laughs> planning. There was never anything. They just threw me into like the, the wolves and I'm supposed to just somehow make it work. And while I was probably not as mature as I am now, and I could have done things differently. But back then I felt for a young person who was only a few years removed from school from, you know, furniture making school. I just did all these pieces with you guys and some of them just all on my own. And I came up with methods and techniques that in the moment I had to do something because they were on me like white on rice, which is one of my favorite sayings. Um, <laughs> they were just on me and I had to just, con- they, they had, they had time frames of, of, of how long a piece they thought they can take, but they never considered that that's what it takes for them to do, not for me to do. Hmm. And they had the approach of this left apron only fit this left leg. And that's when I say that's understandable if you're using a restoration mentality. And that's when you say in production, this left rail will fit any left leg. It's more sought after if you're trying to get stuff done at a certain time frame. Hmm. Um, but these pieces uh, were absolutely amazing. You know, I, I've, as I reflect back, it was truly an honor 
to work with them. It was truly an honor to grow and make these pieces. It was a job I took only because I felt I would never make these pieces again. Hmm. And uh, I made it with them. So I want to emphasize, you know, it was just us. It wasn't me. You know, it, that being said, my name is on the, a plate in this museum. So uh, m many of the pieces, uh, I'm just, you know, they're never probably going to listen to this anyway. Uh, you know, many <laughs> of these pieces can, can, can be seen at the Alexander Hamilton Muse Museum, Hamilton Grange in uh, okay. Harlem, New York. And uh, there's a lot of pieces in there that we did as a collaboration that was truly an honor to work on. Mm -hmm. uh, and that right there is kind of like the highlight of my career. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I've made one piece, another piece. I happen to have one in my dining dining room. Uh, that's a John and Thomas Seymour desk with mirror or, or chest with mirror. Uh, there was a student named Austin Winters who I went to school with. He was a year before me. Uh, highly skilled, highly you know, had a great eye. He's probably the same age or maybe a year older than I am. He, and when I got there, he was extremely well advanced and he always was advanced. And he made this piece that came out beautiful at the time. And then years later, I felt like, okay, if I am going to feel that I've gotten anywhere, I am going to make this piece because Austin did, because I saw all the challenges. And I made that piece and uh, I quickly started examining and, and, and really studying these pieces and, you know, blowing it up and figuring out all the swing points for the elliptical top crest of the mirror frame. And I noticed that, you know, Austin did um, tapered fluting. I realized actually it's tapered reading on the vertical supports. And then I noticed that the journey was different. So I made it my own. I made certain things my own. And then when I saw the original and I started taking my notes and measuring and comparing, it was like, holy crap. Like, I'm actually, like, I, I nailed a lot of proportions and details. Oh. Uh, I, there, there was plenty that I missed for joinery because you couldn't see. We just thought we know what options we had. But mm -hmm. overall, it felt good that I have an evolution. I was more, I was closer to what the original was. I was able to build something that was comparable to my friend at school of high of his high level and skill. So that's another piece that in my life, I feel like I did pretty well. And I made, wow. I've made three of them, sold two of them. And I have one that's slightly more, <clears throat> excuse me, simplified, but still has the elegance and grace that's with me forever. Oh, cool. Yay. That's great. I love when people yeah. get to keep something that they've made. <laughs> we talked to so yeah. many <laughs> people who make like amazing, you know, beautiful, pieces of craft you know crafts personship and uh mm -hmm. and no one gets to keep anything because they have to you know live <laughs> yeah. so it makes well, me happy when someone's able cobbler to cobbler with no shoes yeah, exactly yeah. so yeah. you know that that mentality is uh sticks with me so uh my wife and i will be buying a house at some point in, in the very near future and mm. the you know we have the funny discussion of like you know we can't wait years for our dining room table Okay. Yeah. So, or a chair. So, uh, there, there will be a significant amount of furniture making, which I look forward to that, uh, I'm going to make for my, for us, for our house, you know, the dining cool. room table, the Windsor chairs, the, the bureaus, the chests, the coffee table, you know, all that stuff I will be making. And the reason for that is Patrick Edwards. He's a great artist in, um, artisan in San Diego. His focus is on marquetry. 
And so I told, I always asked them, and it's like, you know, I see that you make all these pieces and everything else, you know, how hard is it to find the clients and, you know, how hard is it to uh, make it the way you want to make it? And he said to me a long time ago, he says, I make what I want. And then I email them and tell them, you want an opportunity to own my piece? Here it is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So it's kind of drop. One, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, you make it, then if you want to sell it, Go ahead and try to sell it after the, because it's like you will enjoy the process more mm -hmm. and you will cherish it even more. Because even if someone doesn't buy it, you have something that you would love to own anyway. Mm -hmm. So I always thought that information was pretty cool. Yeah. So have you had any personal transformations through woodworking? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm believe it or not, I'm so much more patient now mm. than I used to be. Mm. Um, I, I feel that I am more at peace. Uh, and I feel that uh, it's, it's truly like therapy. Some, you know, not always, because sometimes, you know, the pressure and everything else. But when mm. I'm in the zone, it truly feels like therapy. And it's, it's truly a joy. It helps me relax and appreciate uh, life more. Mm. Uh, but besides that, you know, I, I, well, teaching, teaching has, has its blessings and its curse mm -hmm. because teaching allows me to see the same passion I had when I first started, when someone's finally getting a certain technique or method and you see that mm -hmm. joy, you yeah. know, there's so much joy that you get from them having joy and, and, and being excited. So I do enjoy that process and I enjoy seeing, um, people who, struggled and now have a better understanding because it means that I did something well. I actually taught them something and that mm -hmm. they now can enjoy this woodworking even more because it's, you know, this woodworking is very difficult and uh, there's a lot to learn and it's a huge investment. And uh, so being able to show someone that it's, it's just a tweak things here and there and it becomes easier for them, you know, I bring, I get a lot of joy from that or satisfaction. Yeah, yeah. I personally believe that the sign of a good teacher is uh, recognizing where a student is and then mm -hmm. being able to bridge the gap between where they are and where like the next step for their growth is. Yes, 100%. Um, yeah, I think it sounds like you really have taken to that. That's that's good. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, the issue is, and this comes back from experiences, I've taken many woodworking classes and from all different aspects. And there, there's been plenty of times that I wish I got my money back. And mm -hmm. there's been plenty of times that I wish I paid more for the class because I got so much out of it. Mm -hmm. And the issue is, is and, I, and I tell this to students who ask me, you know, what do you think about this class? So what do you think about this person? And I say to them, this is the only thing I would say. Study them, review them. Maybe they have an article here and there. See what their passions are. Social media is a great thing. See if they'll interact with you, ask a question and a technique. So see how they explain something to you. Because unfortunately, there's amazing craftsmen's craftspeople out there. But it doesn't mean that they're great teachers. Mm -hmm. Okay. The insight they give you may be great. But when it comes down to physically breaking it down one-on-one -on -one or in a class setting, not everyone's meant to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. and, and, and sometimes you maybe caught them at the wrong time. They just started out and they're evolving. Uh, but you know, I would say that you have to be very cautious 
and who you're learning from today, especially since, you know, if you're going to travel, you're paying for a hotel, you, t you know, you have to invest in tools, just a huge uh, sacrifice that you're making. So you got to make yeah. sure it's worth it for you. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I also really like that you mentioned patience earlier, because that uh, our the guest from the last episode, uh, Julia Kalthoff, who makes uh, carving axes, mm -hmm. that was also her answer as a uh, personal transformation. And yes. it's interesting because that has not come up, I feel like, until last episode. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, it's one of those things that uh, you can get easily frustrated with this. It's, it's you know, I wasn't like people think, oh, my God, you know, you know, you're a master, which I'm not. And uh, maybe I got a few of the vowels in that word, but that's basically it. You know, like that, <laughs> like that jacket you get in high school and college, you get the letters, you know, yeah. I just got the vowels, you know, or. <laughs> or Wheel of Fortune, you know, uh, I, I like to get an A, please. <laughs> um, <laughs> that that kind of mentality. Uh, it's just one of those things that I was not skilled at this. This wasn't, I feel, natural for me. Mm. I have fallen many times on my face. I have made many mistakes. I have, mm -hmm. I have screwed up many things. But I learned from my mistakes. And I remember my mistakes. So for the next time around... Uh, I, I hope not to make the mistakes and my mistakes are significantly reduced. Uh, I, do I get frustrated? Like, duh, you know, I talk to myself <laughs> and I was like, come on, you, you know, such and such, you should have been aware of this. And you know, that, that still happens cause I am human. Um, but overall it's just one of those things that you just get better and repetition and, uh, you get comfortable and you understand what sharp means and how the efficient, mm -hmm how more efficient you are with something actually being sharp. So mm -hmm. I think that also helps you as a person as you build up. You know, that's where the question is, should I do this professionally? Go, should I go to school for this or should I just continue being doing this as a hobby? You know, every single person that I spoke to of saying, I asked them, should I go do this full time? Should I go to school for this? Every single one of them says, don't do it. They said, mm -hmm. just become a hobbyist. And then I sat down one day and I was like, if I become a hobbyist, I still need to get a job and I have to work so many hours and everything else. So my, my skill level will take significantly longer to achieve where I want to mm -hmm. be, my desire. I'd rather go ahead and like learn how to do this and, die, and be like drowning in all this information and, and trying to gain all this skill so that I can build that skill. And then if I don't succeed, well, I still got that skill and I still am more ahead than I was if I just did this as a hobby. So I hope I can be as yeah. thoughtful as you at some point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Freddie, um, what about the work satisfies you? I know you just talked a little bit about that and then maybe mm -hmm. talk about some of the challenges. So what I get, you know, since I do a lot of restoration, it's always the satisfaction of so many people. It's like, oh yeah, you have to just replace that. You just have to get something new. Or, you know, this can't be restored. You know, there's too much damage. And mm -hmm. uh, I come in and I, I just put, you know, effort, time, hours, uh, you know, slowly just peeling back the layers. And then uh, what I enjoy is basically being able to save something for the next generation to enjoy, to improve on a certain scenario that, you know, perfect example, vinyl windows and wood windows. You know, I'm extremely comfortable saying that I can make a wood window properly restored with all the proper weather stripping and everything else 
just as good or better than a vinyl window. Mm-hmm. You know, I guarantee it. So those those things of being able to preserve the overall stature and the look for next generations to enjoy hopefully will uh, inspire them and make them realize like, wow, this building looks great, but the windows don't look that great compared to the one next to it, especially like a brownstone, for example. So preserving history. I totally love being able to get challenged and look at an item and come up with a scale drawing, come up with a drawing, and then just go ahead and make it. Being able to just, like Peter Follinsby or uh, Peter Galbert, being able to just split a log and fabricate parts from it and then just go through the process of making something, you know, there's so much joy with that. The same thing happens Mm -hmm. when I'm just buying kiln-dried lumber at the lumberyard and processing all the wood and making something, seeing it come together, just brings so much joy to me. Like my hands just made this. Mm-hmm. Like, holy crap. Like, <laughs> like how is this possible? You know? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there's something amazing about that. Like, you know, and, and it goes as far as I bought two by fours at Home Depot. I laid them out. I spaced them out properly. I nailed them together and we erected it. And holy crap, a wall has been made. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's just it's just all that. It's just from the basics of like residential to furniture making to anything in between. Um, you know, that's why I like to call myself like a wood mechanic per se, because mm. being able to just slowly put pieces together or remove pieces and reassemble them, there's so much joy in that. And mm. there's an internal battle with me regarding that because uh, I do so much under pressure because people don't understand timing. People don't understand the work that's involved. We have to work really hard to educate people that this mm-hmm. is not HGTV, that I have a battle Jeez. that yeah. <laughs> I, I, I get extremely frustrated because people sometimes don't understand that my methods, you hired me because I am different. My mm-hmm. methods take longer, but they last longer. Say the carpenter who's just going to use Gorilla Glue while I'm actually using, you know, proper joinery and assembling it. Mm-hmm. In the end, it may look exactly the same, but mine is going to last significantly longer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's kind of like, do you want to buy replacement windows every 15 years, or do you just have to paint the windows I make every 15 years? Right. You know, there's a yeah. difference there. So yeah. there's there's a frustration of um, pressure and people understanding, uh, but there is so much joy also in the craft. And then I also have to remember that because sometimes I go into this dark hole and it's just like, why do I do this? You know, why do I work yeah. in this field? And then, then there's times that I was just like, I love this field. I love working into my shop and smelling the, the, the glues and the adhesive and seeing all the work that's coming in and I'm saving all this stuff. Yeah. But you know, I, maybe each person is different, but you know, there, there is, this is when people say, this is probably why you should just focus on one thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's always that, but you know, I just love it too much. Yeah, totally. It's there's it's difficult to balance those moments of like, I love this, I hate this, I love this, I yeah. hate this. But, exactly. <laughs> but it's like at least we can say we chose this. And I think yes. that that always will make it so that the I love this will, you know, win out over the I hate this because Big time. you got to choose it. Because you know, it's like I know not everyone can do this, but, you know, for the rest of my life and when I'm gone, uh, there's there's over 25 pieces in museums that have my name on them. 
-hmm. So there's something to be said about history. Like, you know, I left my mark and people may not know it, but sooner or later they're going to move around something. They're going to see my signature. They're going to see something or they're going to find the history behind it. And just pretty cool. It's for lack of a better yeah. term. It's just pretty amazing. And yeah. Uh, yeah. There's something to be said about that. Yeah. Yeah. I also really want you to redo your intro later where you introduce yourself as a wood mechanic. <laughs> Not a problem. Yeah. Wood mechanic. <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess before I forget, you know, what, what, what I, one also, one very challenging thing is running a business. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot involved. There's in, in, uh, if I could compare this to a, a plumber would gets paid the minute he opens that door to his truck. You know, you need him to fix the issue at your house or the mm -hmm. shop, or whatever it is. And you're going to pay him whatever price he says without question. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be like, well, you know, this this other plumber told me he's going to do it for fifteen dollars less. You know, that doesn't that doesn't happen. It's like you have a need. And yeah. uh, in business, like people, people take advantage of like, you know, they want a free estimate, a free quote. Come to my house. Talk to me about this for an hour and then go to mm -hmm. someone else. And. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a learning curve in business that you now charge for estimates and then you get them for free if you get the job. Or you don't go to people's houses unless you get a fee. And again, the fees will be given back or added to the total if you get the job. Because our time is worth something. Our time mm -hmm. is worth money and we only have so much time. And if I'm answering the phone all day and answering emails all day, I actually got no work done, even though I had a full day of engagement and work involved. In the end, if I didn't produce, there is no money to feed my family. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we, as people who own businesses, we really need to work together and educate ourselves so that it doesn't become constantly, it's not a constant challenge. So that, mm -hmm. that's a big factor that I want people to understand that, you know, you really need to work on your business. And even even I still need to grow on that because mm -hmm. there's moments of like, I don't want to deal with anyone because I just dealt with everyone all day and I still haven't made any money. And in business, that could be a crutch because you still have to answer the emails. You still have to answer the phone calls. Yeah, so totally. There's a balance there. Did you take any business classes? You mentioned that earlier uh, that or you mentioned the possibility of taking business classes or something, but I can't remember if you said that you actually had, or if most of what you've learned is just trial and error. Um, you know what? I, I did not take any real major business classes. You know, I took accounting in, in college, uh, cause it's kind of one of those courses that you needed the, the, the credits, you know, it's just to get your associates at the time. And I mm -hmm. took some, um, understanding of business finance. Uh, but beyond that, I just learned on my own, uh, there was an article by Christian Bexford many years ago in this magazine that came out from California. It was more of a modern, modern uh, magazine. It, it doesn't exist anymore. I can't remember. It's Woodwork magazine. And I still have this article. And in this article, uh, it's, it states, if you want to become a furniture maker, then you get a business degree. And you understand business because woodworking is the easy part. Business is, is the hard part. And ever since I read that article, I really started diving into more business books and asking people questions about business and their approach and what they do, what's been very successful. I listen to business coaches. I listen to business podcasts. My brother's a business major and a and finance major. So I then pick his brain. And that's when I 
found more of me and because I couldn't be the harsh, blunt, cold person anymore if I want to be successful. And they, I wasn't intentionally trying to be that way. It just, it comes naturally to me because I'm so super focused on what I'm doing that I have more of a stern face and mm. then, you know, and tone matters. I never knew about tone and now I'm getting more of an understanding of all that. And so, you know, I've just been asking and learning and trying to get better at it. It's not easy uh, because sometimes I just, I just want to work and just hire an office person. Like you deal with the clients, you deal with all the invoicing, you deal with that. I just want to make, yeah. Yeah. but as a small business owner, you know, everything adds up. So you kind of have to wear all these hats. Totally. Pocosin Arts School of Fine Craft near the Outer Banks of North Carolina invites you to refine your skills from the comfort of your home by signing up for an interactive online workshop taught by world-class instructors in a variety of media. Scholarships are available, so be sure to check those out. To learn about these opportunities and more, visit pocosinarts.org. And that's P-O-C-O-S-I-N-A-R-T-S dot O-R-G. So... Uh, are there any other makers that you admire? Oh, tons. Like <laughs> the, 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 the thing that, that makes me a little bit different than, than many other people is that, um, not only do I enjoy furniture makers and have a passion for them. Um, I also enjoy the restoration, the conservation. I enjoy the modern crafts people. I enjoy people who do 17th century work there. You know, I enjoy stair builders and, you know, so there's mm -hmm. so many of a wide spectrum and mm -hmm. um, I follow just about anyone and everyone that piques my interest. You know, mm -hmm. of course you have people like Chris Schwartz is a, or Schwartz is a, it's a great person who I'm a big fan of. And there's mm -hmm. like Don Williams and who is a great conservator. And, you know, I have old masters like, Al Breed and Christian Bexford and uh, Will Neptune. Um, there's like Mike Pekovich from uh, Fine Woodworking. He's very mm -hmm. inspiring and and um, you know, of course, Nancy Hiller. It's, it's her her words and her her the way she expresses herself um, and her, shares her experiences are absolutely amazing. And you got Peter Follensby and Peter Galbert and and. Um, there's a lot of modern guys that are online on Instagram that I know more of like, uh, Greg Pennington is another great one. Mm -hmm. Um, there's, um, uh, Pine Mar. There's a guy online who does great remodels. There's another gentleman that I follow online that his, his handle is, um, are you a fixer? And he's a fixer and, and he, he does anything and everything out of New York. And there's of course, Jimmy DeResta, who is very inspiring to get people into oh, the yeah. craft and become, become makers. Mm -hmm. And those guys, those guys are really great. And, uh, of course you have, um, Fitz, Megan Fitzpatrick, and there's a variety of different of window makers. Like uh, there's wood window museum who's in, in Florida, which is Steve, who I'm a big fan of. And then, uh, you know, there's so many people that I was trying to make a list and I was just like, I just can't pick one. <laughs> you know, I just, I just, it's, it's so hard. Like, you know, I have a friend named Copper Pig, uh, Paul Jasper. He does modern boxes, modern, modern work. He, he is spectacular. He's so talented. Mm -hmm. And then there's a, there's a guy named, uh, who does 
uh, like weatherizing, and he's a builder named Ben Bogey. He's he's from out of Connecticut. He was in Maine. That's another great person. Oh, how can I forget Joshua Klein? I absolutely love Joshua mm. Klein from Mortis and Tender <laughs> Magazine. Yeah. And so you know the list just just keeps going on and on and on. And um, there, there's so many talented people out there, and I feel that. Everyone says, oh, you're on the same page as them. I was like, no, you know, these guys are so unique and so special. It's just like I, you know, kind of like respect them and bow down to them. Like Roy Underhill, like, you know, if you ever read his book on on, on presentation, uh, something shoe, crunt, crunt, it begins with a K, yeah, something shoe. No, I don't it, think I have. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a great book. Not, not many people uh, know about this book, but the book, it's all about presentation. And how he interacts and why he interacts the way he does and why he makes um, uh, noises at, at, uh, at a presentation and his laughters and his changing of voice and his camera work and how he, he asks the presentation, presenter at his show all these questions that he already knows but comes across that like he has no idea. And mm-hmm. he expresses himself like, wow, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Let's focus on this. Let me see that. Let's get an up-close view of this. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like he saw it for the first time. And that information, that insight that all these people share, uh, it's incredible. It's like, you know, you, it brings so much joy. And uh, I really, truly enjoy seeing all that. So, unfortunately, awesome. I did terrible of picking particular names. There's thousands i would i want i would say no that's okay yeah totally also i looked up the book and it is called uh i think khrushchev's shoe and other ways to captivate an audience of one to one thousand yes that's it and it's it i've I've read it multiple times it's absolutely incredible um and i highly recommend it to anyone and everyone who's interested in presenting or trying to co you know you always need to present sometimes or you need to get out of your shell. And that book truly helped me get an understanding of com- communicating and conveying a message to people. And it's really mm-hmm. good because he worked at Colonial Williamsburg. And while he was trying to get work done, he would get interrupted every 15 minutes. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's also a guy online. I forgot his, I mentioned his name is like Callan Malsby. Um, he does unbelievable um architectural work uh, big fan his his work is absolutely gorgeous uh he's another person who i enjoy uh you know tr- tr- i have a friend named uh tr- tried and true trades carpentry from new jersey he's he's spectacular um that i absolutely love and they do absolutely great work and he, you know even though he does a lot of machine work he still does um great beautifully proportioned reproductions his name is Tim Beardsley, True Trade Carpentry. Um, hmm. That's another great one. Uh, there's so many people out there, and that's what's great about it. That's the only reason I still dabble with social media is seeing these people out there doing what they do day in and day out and mm-hmm. having something similar that you understand the stress and the work and the effort that's being put into it. So we automatically become friends because we understand the battle that they have. Yeah, yeah. So sorry. I keep babbling, so sorry. No, no. <laughs> we love a good babble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what inspires you outside of 
woodworking and conservation and restoration. What else are you uh, interested in? You know, the problem, you know, the, honestly, the problem is that uh, I'm so addicted to this that um, <laughs> like there, there isn't really much of anything that really appeals to me. But nature, you know, there's something oh, just yes. about nature. Uh, you know, I love the ocean water, the beach, the sand, going when you visit mm -hmm. a different island, the, his, the history or the nature involved in the animals of the area and the, all the birds and the sounds that come from mm -hmm. you know the forest and everything else i do enjoy that um mm -hmm. i enjoy believe it or not i enjoy the simple things i try to say i enjoy the simple things i truly love family i truly mm -hmm. you know that's one of the the benefits of my wife and and her family they're an amazing family the the interaction and the, the laughter and the memories and the tears of of, of the loss you know just mm -hmm. forms a great bond uh, as I age, I just notice more and more that we have one, one life. I'm sorry because I just, I lost my mother. So, um, oh. to, to, oh my to, gosh. to COVID and, um, oh, I'm sorry. you know, I thought I'd be stronger than this, but, uh, after, after losing her tomorrow will be 10 months. Um, mm. man, I'm sorry. Know, family is something that outside of my work that I now appreciate even more than I did before. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't want to take it for granted because we never know who's going to get lost or who we're going to lose. So I now appreciate that aspect more. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I apologize. I, I thought I'd be better, but. No, don't apologize. Know. There's, you know, we, we talk about craft and we talk about all that kind of stuff, but we're also just people, you know? Yes. And we have families and we have struggles and those are part of the story too. And, yeah. um, I don't think that that needs to be apologized for. I think, I think we're all, um, probably everyone who's listening to this has, has their own story with family too. And, uh, Definitely. I don't think that, uh, I think that just being honest is, is good. So so uh, yeah you yeah. know i guess i i would i would say that the the worth ethic that i have and the drive you know it comes from both my parents bikes it really does come from my mother like you know she mm -hmm. hated what she did but she got up at four o'clock in the morning and she did the best that she possibly could and she did amazing so mm -hmm. okay um so, Freddie, if someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you? Uh, you know, they can find me on Instagram, period craftsman, or that's the handle, uh, period craftsman, you know, like plural with an E, crafts with an S, dot uh, com is also my website. I am trying to get back into writing the blog again because I do enjoy sharing my experiences. So hmm. there'll be a lot more of that coming up. I have a lot of stuff on paper. It just, you know, take, hmm. takes time to to go ahead and put it on on the on the, the blog on the computer I, yeah yeah exactly i have it on paper and then you know it's just like it's ridiculous now i i take We're advantage of a true analog person <laughs> <laughs> what what happens now believe it or not is i started taking advantage of uh, siri in my notes uh, like app i start basically putting the voice icon on and it records mm -hmm. Records it. Mm -hmm. It's good and bad because sometimes it, it makes up whatever words it thinks I said. Uh, <laughs> and then I have to reflect back. They're like, what did I mean here? Um, but overall, there's a lot of, there's a lot on paper 
and there's uh, a lot of my experiences that I hope find woodworking and be interested in uh, partaking in. If not, I'll be incorporating that more into my blog, and hopefully that'll be helpful for people and mm. um, mm -hmm. continue educating people. And I, I continue educating myself, and I can share that experiences. Yeah. And you also you also have a podcast, right? Oh yes, I do have a podcast. It's called Against the Grain Podcast. I share that with Guy Dunlop and Justin De Palma. Uh, like anything else, we're all three professionals who do this stuff for a living. So mm -hmm. we were great in the beginning for over a year or so. Right now, we're we're trying our best to get on the same schedule because we're so hectic, but we're we're mm -hmm. still keeping that alive and active. We can definitely relate to that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. if you if you if you want to hear more rants and frustrations, you know, you you head over to that podcast. And we, you know, <laughs> we we tell you our experiences that we're dealing with and our frustrations of. You know, finding employees, once we have the employees, the expectations, the struggles, the the customer yeah. issues, you know, it's kind of like real life, like, oh, this is our week or this has been our month, you know, and, and yeah. uh, it's pretty good sharing that. It's like therapy. And then mm. I think there's so many people on, out there who have thanked us for sharing our experiences because that helped them in their business. That gave them the confidence because one big thing I've learned over this year, over the years, is just... I just say no. Like, you know, customers is like, I expect this by Friday. I was like, you just gave it to me like two weeks ago. I have, <laughs> I, I, I have a backlog. The answer is no. You know, you could come get your item, you know. But year, years ago, I would freak out and get nervous and like change my whole schedule for them. And uh, yep, yeah. totally. And now it's just like, no, no, you know. And, and, and yeah. uh, now I, it's even more confident of like, you know, the shop's now open by appointment only. So you can't just randomly come to my shop. Uh, so mm -hmm. the answer is no, and it's by appointment only. <laughs> and guess what? I have no appointments for the next two weeks. So, you know. <laughs> so take that. Just take that, you know. Uh, <laughs> and that, and that, not that I'm trying to be uh, rude to them or anything, but it's just kind of like, you know, can you call your doctor today and set an appointment tomorrow? Most often than not, the answer is no. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so it's kind of like I demand the same respect. Uh, when your doctor says it's a $50 copay, you know, when you, I say, oh, yes, $240, and you say, can you do better? And the answer is no. Yeah, I can do better. It's 300 now. You now. <laughs> it was 240 now 300 Yes, I can do better for you. Yes, I love it. Uh, so I joke with them. Most people say, okay, that sounds good, without actually listening to me. And then they reflect back and be like, oh, you said 300 Wait, you said 240 a couple minutes ago. Exactly. So do you want 240 or do you want 300 you know? yeah. So that's kind of kind of like the banter we have in, the, in our podcast. That's so good. I hope that there's a segment in there that's called the answer is no. Yeah. Like, <laughs> this week's no is. Yeah. Yes. So. Uh, well, well, Freddie, just as your previous or your listeners to your podcast have thanked you for sharing your experiences, we too would like to uh, thank you so much for joining us on the show and, uh, and telling us all about what you do and where you're coming from. Awesome. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Yeah. Thanks, Freddie. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this conversation and also to everyone who has supported the show, whether financially or otherwise. An extra special thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. As we all know, things are opening back up a little bit and it's getting harder and harder to balance the domains of the podcast with everything else. So your support really, really means the world to us. Thank you so much. Every contribution matters, both for helping us grow the podcast and raising money for craft scholarships. Also, thank you to our sponsors, North House Folk School in Minnesota, John C. Campbell Folk School in Western North Carolina, 
and Pocosin Arts School of Fine Craft in eastern North Carolina near the Outer Banks. A free way to support the show is to leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we really appreciate the feedback. And if you'd like to see more images of guesswork or stay up to date on other happenings like the class giveaway we are currently doing with Pocosin Arts School of Fine Craft, please follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> also, if you would like to see more of our work, both of our accounts are linked in the bio of the podcast page. If you have any questions, comments, or guest recommendations for the show, or even if you just want to say hi, you can email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com. And as always, a huge thanks to Brad Vetter for your graphic design, to the High Divers and Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for your music and help with production, and to Justin Williams for writing those little poetic tidbits introducing our upcoming guests. Speaking of which, coming up next, we have an interview with Mud Dauber and Woodchuck Kiko Denzer. So to get a little glimpse into our conversation, here's a clip from the interview. Thanks again for joining us. See you next time. It's a very easy medium for collaborative work because, you know, you jump around. It's like dancing. You <laughs> dance with other people in the mud and it's totally communal. And then the the building process is, you know, it's mud pies. You just add mud pies to the wall. And that kind of communal labor is so rare in our culture, you know, because if you're building a house, you have to know how to use power tools and, you know, mm -hmm. not hit people in the head with the 20 foot two by six that you're carrying <laughs> across the job site and, you know, not walk on nails. It's dangerous. Right. And, mm -hmm. and you have to maintain your separation from other people. But working with mud is all about connection and community. Mm -hmm.